John chapter 1. Our main text this morning is, is John chapter 1, verse 14. And we are going to unpack some of what that nearness looks like. Some of what that, that nearness of the God who redeems looks like. So if you would like to take your Bibles and, and turn to John 1 this morning. Our main idea that we want to, to hit over and over and over again this morning and get pounded into our hearts and into our heads is, is to rejoice in the gospel of the incarnation. Come, let us adore Him. Rejoice in the gospel of the incarnation. Come, let us adore Him. Have you ever looked up the word adore? I did. And I was a little bit surprised at what I found. I was interested and, and I thought, hmm, it was a little bit different than what I expected. When we sing the popular Christmas hymn, O Come, Let Us Adore Him, I've always understood by upbringing and context kind of what was being exhorted there, what, what the song was trying to, to bring us to. But I must confess that I thought the songwriter's choice of word adore was maybe a little bit off. Now, obviously, it makes more poetic sense, and it wouldn't work to sing, Oh, come let us worship Him. It just doesn't work nearly as So I thought, well, just kind of one of those poetic decisions where you put in adore instead of worship because it fits the song much better. However, I could not have been more incorrect. Adore is an excellent word choice for that song. According to the online Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, the word adore has three meanings, and they come in this order. First, to worship or honor as a deity or as divine. Second, to regard with loving admiration and devotion. And third, to be very fond of. I, I could not have written a better three-point definition of what I pray will come, that we will come away with today regarding Jesus, specifically in His incarnation. Even the order of these three definitions is so spot on regarding how we should respond as Christians toward our Savior, especially in this time of year when we consider His coming to earth as a baby. Rejoice in the gospel of, in, of incarnation. Come, let us adore Him. First and foremost, let us worship and honor Him as deity, as divine. Second, let us regard Him with loving admiration and devotion. And third, let us cultivate in our hearts a dear fondness of Jesus. John 1, 1-18, through 18, let's read together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the light, excuse me, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, you have said in the epistle to the Hebrews that from long ago you have used many ways to speak to mankind. This morning, as we gather together, we want to focus on the one who entered our world over 2,000 years ago as a baby without privilege or rank. Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to learn of Him, honor Him, and adore Him. We look to Him because He is the radiance of your glory and the exact imprint of your nature. We look to Him because In Him is life, and the life is our light. We look to Him because He is light which cannot be overcome by darkness. We look to Him because He is the true light which enlightens everyone. We look to Him because He is the supreme revelation of You, Father. Although no one has ever seen You, Father, Jesus has made You known. Since if any has seen Christ, he has seen the Father. We are grateful this morning and will be grateful for all eternity for this light. A light that has given us who have received him, who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, the right to become your children. We cannot begin to understand or appreciate all that is contained in that simple-to-read phrase, the right to become your children. We marvel together this morning at the grace and mercy that you showed us while we were yet sinners. We marvel that the one who was in the beginning and was with God and was God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being born in the likeness of men. We marvel at his willingness to enter his creation, to abhor not the virgin's womb, as the songwriter stated, and to become flesh and dwell among us. We marvel at his perfect life, the life of one who was made like us in all respects, yet without sin. We marvel at his willingness to do the will of him who sent him, to be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, 
in order to bear your righteous wrath against sin in our place as a substitute. We marvel at his boundless love and compassion to freely give those of us who have by faith believed in his name the righteousness that he earned so that you could look on us as a compassionate father and not as a judge who demands payment for the crushing debt we owe. This morning, as we look into your written word and worship the living word, may you press upon our hearts the significance of the incarnation. May we leave here today with a deeper, more appreciative understanding of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Father, use your word as a spotlight shining into our redeemed yet still sinful hearts and reveal to us those things which we still cling to that are contrary to the gospel which has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son. Use your word as the life-giving light to shine into the dark hearts of those who have never been made alive by your Spirit. Father, there are some here this morning who are already confronted with the reality that these truths spoken here today are not truths that have changed them. There are some that hear these words who do not know you as Savior. These truths are distant and foreign. Use the preaching of your word this morning and the gospel of the incarnation to bring life to dead hearts. We don't speak coldly or rudely of those who have not believed, but only honestly, as we ourselves have only been made alive because of your gracious choice. We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross, not one of us more deserving of your grace than another. We all deserve your wrath. We pray that you would be merciful to those who do not know Jesus as Savior, to our family members and friends who sit here with us today and those who are not present but will hear your word online or in another assembly this morning. We pray that you would be compassionate and grant repentance and faith and would replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. What an appropriate time to consider our need of a Savior, the time when we remember his birth into our world. May the true purpose of his coming be on our hearts and in our minds this morning and in the, and the rest of our lives. We pray now that we, as John and those who walked with Christ experienced, would behold his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Give skill and accuracy to the communication today. Give understanding and transformation of heart to all of us here this morning as a result of the time that we spend together centered around your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. I've entitled the sermon today, The Gospel of the Incarnation. Incarnation is likely the less familiar word to most of us. Between the two words in that, that phrase, gospel and incarnation. But it is not hard to understand. Literally, the word means in fleshing, to be wrapped in flesh. This is why we read the word became flesh and talk about the incarnation of Jesus. It is speaking about Jesus as taking a real physical human body. 
There was nothing mystical about Jesus' body. It was real human flesh. The same kind of flesh that you and I possess. The same kind of flesh that you can reach down and squeeze. Gospel, simply put, means what? Good news, right? So let me ask you today. Could you explain why the incarnation, that infleshing of Jesus, is gospel or good news? If somebody was to ask you, could you explain to them why the incarnation is good news? We hear each Christmas season the narrative story of Christ's birth. And if you are like me, we often leave our meditation of the birth of Jesus to rest at that point. We know and we regularly remind ourselves that Jesus was born to die, and that the baby in the manger came to save his people from their sins. So in a sense, we do understand some of the gospel of the incarnation. If, like me, you have rarely connected the deeper truths of the incarnation to the gospel, I pray that this time together would be both convicting and encouraging. I pray that as we study John 1.14 together, we would be struck with a depth of understanding that we had previously not known. That the birth of the baby Jesus in the manger would not be merely the story we tell our children this time of year, but would instead be the truth that helps to shape our understanding of the gospel and grow in our love, gratitude, and adoration for our Savior Jesus. Let me ask you something as we get started here this morning. How do you know something is good news? If I said, this is good news, you ever consider that before? How do you know something is good news? What is necessary to make something good news? Think about some, th- some of these statements. What makes these statements good news? I have found the cure. Or, I've got a fire extinguisher. Or, or maybe... I have some anti-venom. Or, I have enough parachutes for everyone. Or, I found a water source. What is it that turns those statements into good news? It has to be a backdrop of bad news, right? A problem or a crisis. Would it be good news for us in this room here today for somebody to come in and shout excitedly, I've got enough parachutes for everyone! (laughs) wouldn't be good news, would it? We'd be like, this guy's a little bit loony. Maybe just help him him exit the building, right? However, is there a situation in which that statement would be the best news that you could ever hear? Yeah. What if you were in a plane in which the engine had failed and it was falling to the ground? Those words would seem like your salvation for someone to call out, I've got enough parachutes for everyone. Today we can hear the words, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and hear only words with little impact. Alternatively, we can hear those words with the proper understanding of the reality of our fallen condition, and those same words will be the most wonderful good news that we could ever hear. Jesus' earthly life, a little over 2,000 years ago, was not the first time that God freely communed with mankind. In fact, God created man, 
placed Adam and his wife Eve in the garden, and they enjoyed sweet fellowship, God and man. As a matter of fact, John's gospel brings, excuse me, begins with the same three words as does the first book of the Old Testament. Genesis in the beginning. We read the opening of either book and we often think of the, the other counterpart, do we? Don't we? We see in John, in the beginning was the word. And we see in the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created. Adam, before the fall, enjoyed sweet, intimate fellowship with his creator. Dare we say, with Jesus. You ever thought about that? John would seem to support that assertion when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Think also of Genesis 3.8, which, read, which reads, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. If we can suggest a possibility here, consider this with me. When we see a physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament, it is most certainly what theologians call a Christophany, or a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. I would like to suggest that this is theologically probable, that it was the Word who was God, who was in the garden with Adam and Eve. Furthermore, if this holds to be true, then when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day, it was none other than Jesus. For God the Father, being a spirit and having no body, would not be walking in the physical world and making walking sounds, would he? This could be heard and in turn hid from. As Adam and his wife did that, what was the result of this meeting of God and man? The sin that Adam committed resulted in the loss of intimate communion between creator and creature. The loss was devastating. Instead of man enjoying the presence of God as he intended, he was terrified and smitten with guilt when he heard his creator walking in the garden. The presence of God was now threatening, terrifying, unwelcome. How sin had destroyed what God had created is beautiful. We see that man was even sent out from the garden and the cherubim was placed at the east gate of the garden to prevent his return. However, these terrible consequences of sin were not the only thing to come to pass that day. We also get a glimpse of the compassion of God for his creation. Genesis 3.15 shows us the heart of God toward man when he announced the first gospel message or good news. His good news for man was found in his words to none other than the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We have the first hints of the redemptive plan of God he was going to send the one who Jeremy talked about yesterday, the serpent crusher. One would be born of the offspring of the woman who would bring deliverance. A great preacher many years ago said, 
a great gulf opened between man as evil and God as infinitely pure. And had it not been for true amazing goodness of the Most High, we must all of us forever have been banished from His presence and from the glory of His power. The Lord God in infinite love resolved that He Himself would bridge the distance and would again dwell with man. It is this backdrop which is necessary to understand our text today. Let us consider John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As you read that text, you can, you can readily see the three main statements that the beloved Apostle writes. The Word became flesh. The Word incarnate, or in flesh, dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. It is to these three statements that I want to draw our focus to this Christmas morning. It is in these three points that we can begin to rejoice in the gospel of the Incarnation. Come, let us adore Jesus, the very God of the universe, who became man. First this morning, let's look at the first part of that verse, 14a, and the Word became flesh. First of all, we have to do a little bit of identification. So the first thing we want to look at is the Word identified. As we look into this text, I don't want to assume that everyone here knows what or who the Word is that John speaks about. Most of us are probably familiar enough with this text to know exactly what John is meaning. But just in case this text is unfamiliar to someone here, or listening online, let us take just a moment to explain John's use of the word, the word. John makes several statements about the word in this opening prologue. Verse 1, the word is the eternal God. Verse 2, the word is a person. Verse 3, the word is the creator. Verse 4, the word is light and life. Verse 14, the Word was made flesh. Again, verse 14, the Word dwelt among us. Again, verse 14, the glory of the Word is the glory of the Father. Verses 14 and 17, the Word is full of grace and truth. Verse 16, the Word is the source of grace. I missed one in verse 15. The Word is the one of whom John the Baptist spoke about. Verse 18, the Word is the revelation or the one who exegetes the Father. Friends, there is only one who fits these descriptions. It is none other than Jesus. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the Word of whom John writes. One commentator helped us to understand the necessity of correctly identifying the word like this when he said, in John's prologue, once the identity of the word is grasped, the incarnation is, is seen as, as a stupendous act of revelation, of divine self-disclosure. But 
if the identity of the Word is missed, the incarnation itself is a nonsense. We must understand that the Word that John is speaking of is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So John makes some statements about this Word, Jesus. The Word became flesh. That's a shocking statement when you think about that. It is a shocking statement that the Word became flesh. It's blunt. It's raw. John does not tread lightly with the truth. He does not intend to veil his meaning in any way. Likely, John's choice of words may have been a preventative defense against those who would have attempted to twist his words into meaning less than he intended. He may have been defending against Gnosticism, an early heresy which maintained that matter is evil and spirit is good. Therefore, believing that, Gnostics must deny that Jesus is God in the flesh because flesh is bad and the spirit is good. So they, they deny the scriptural incarnation of God and elevate their own understanding above God's word. So he could have been defending against Gnosticism. He could have been, he could have been defending against docetism. That was another early Christian heresy affirming that Christ did not have a real or natural body during his life on earth, but only an apparent or phantom body since God could by no means defile himself by real contact with humankind. By John's use of the words became or was made flesh, instead of saying something like the word became like a man or the word took on a body, John effectively shuts the door on the Gnostic and the Docetist who would deny the genuine nature of Jesus' human flesh. The original word we see translated became is a genito, which is, is maybe more accurately translated was made or born. We should not read the word became in our translations and think that by becoming, Jesus changed into a man in the sense that by becoming human, he ceased to be God. That is not what John intends at all. He does not want us to think that by, by becoming man, he changed and lost some aspects of his deity. The main point that John is making is that God now has chosen to be with his people in a more personal way than ever before. So we looked at the, the fact that that was a shocking statement, that, that the... That the immaterial God of the universe would, would enter his creation and, and be wrapped in flesh and, and be bound to that creation in such a way. It's also a significant statement. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the final and supreme revelation of God. If we're ever to know God accurately, or personally, intimately, we must have the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. It is in his life as the God-man that we as men 
begin to comprehend God most fully. Even the written revelation of God in the Old Testament was inferior to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Not to say that the Old Testament was flawed, because we know that's not the case. But the revelation of God in Christ was superior even to the written word that the Jews had held for so many centuries. It is in the incarnation that God chose to reveal himself most completely, most fully. When Jesus became flesh, he became a real historical man. When Jesus became flesh, God became man. There can be no better way for us as man to comprehend God than for him to become one of us. So it is a significant statement that the word became flesh. Thirdly, it should should be to us a stirring statement. That short phrase, the word became flesh, ought to stir our hearts. Meditating on that phrase might bring other passages to your mind, such as John 3, 16-18, where we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Maybe you thought of a text like Galatians 4, 4-7, which reads, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, how can you read or hear texts like these? And there are so many others which time does not permit us to explore this morning. How can we read these together and not be stirred in our hearts, stirred unto gratitude, stirred unto humility, stirred to worship and adore the incarnate Christ? Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the gospel of the incarnation this morning. Come, let us adore him. Secondly, this morning we want to look at that second phrase in, in chapter fourteen, or excuse me, in verse fourteen, where John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word incarnate dwelt among us. I want to take a, a little bit of time and look at the presence of God with man in the Old Testament and work our way through to where we are in John's Gospel today and then beyond. So the presence of God with man in the Old Testament. We've already begun to see glimpses of this point here today. 
But I want to build this out a little more fully for us now. Let us take a few minutes and trace the history of God's presence with man through the Old Testament Scriptures. We already looked briefly at the Garden of Eden. We spoke already of the interaction between God and Adam and Eve. We won't rehearse it all again here, but just to remind ourselves of the close, intimate fellowship that was enjoyed. But then that fellowship was lost, and the promise was given of that serpent crusher, that snake crusher who would one day come. So we see the, the, the fellowship lost in the garden. And then what do we see as we, as we move on? There are, there are glimpses and, and, and brief revelations of God, but the next significant aspect of God's fellowship with man, his, his dwelling of God with man, was in the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? We think about that tabernacle in the wilderness. Imagine with me that tent, okay? At the center of the camp of the Israelites as they moved through those wilderness lands. They were not without the presence of God. He was indeed pleased to dwell in type and symbol among his people, wasn't he? He was there. A large tent stood much larger than, than the tents, those multitudes of tents. I mean, you, you imagine how many tents there would have been in the camp of the Israelites. And what, I mean, that thing would have been a massive <laughs> pile of tents. But one tent stood out, didn't it? Mark, much larger than the multitudes of tents that surrounded it, stretching far out into the barren landscape. There it stood, in the heart of the camp. Imagine it. It's daylight. So as your eyes look toward that tent, you feel the hot wind blowing across the landscape. But you cannot help but notice the unmoving pillar of cloud that is arising, as it were, from the Holy of Holies, unmoved by the wind. You walk toward it and you're immediately reminded of, of the holiness of this tent. You can see the thick goat hides that cover this tent and prevent you from peering inside. Though you cannot enter in, you know the beautiful furnishings inside, all made of wood and, and skillfully covered in pure gold. You know of the Ark of the Covenant and what it contained. Maybe you've even seen the priests Carry it on their shoulders as you walk through the wilderness following the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. You understand that it is in that most holy place that the presence of Yahweh dwells. The glory of God resided in that tent. This gave security and comfort to the people of God. God had, in fact, not chosen to manifest His presence with any nation save the nation of Israel. This was a unique relationship that God had with His people, Israel. Move on a little bit. What was the next manifestation of God's presence that we see? The temple, right? 
We move from the tabernacle, that, that temporary dwelling, to the temple. We see so many years later that David desired to build a permanent house for the Lord so that his own house was not more glorious than that of the Lord's. His son Solomon, however, would be the one who was privileged to build that house since David was a bloody man, a man of war. And so, if you look in 1 Kings 8, when the temple construction was complete, the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant into the most holy place in the temple, and there God again dwelt with his people. As a matter of fact, when the priests placed the Ark in the most holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, and the priests could not even stand to minister there because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's presence with his people was real in the Old Testament. He was there dwelling in the midst of his people. But now, come with me to John's Gospel and let's look at the presence of God with man in the Incarnation. John first just lays out the fact. The Word dwelt among us, he says. Do you know what the word dwelt means? Literally, what that word picture is there? Have you heard this before? The word dwelt literally means to pitch one's tent or to tabernacle. It quite literally means that the Word, the second person of the Trinity, pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. Does that even register in, in our so often slow-to-understand minds what that means? That he pitched his tent, he tabernacled among us. Let's, just, let's explore just what the significance holds for us. And in no way will we exhaust this study this morning, or any day. But we will begin to unfold some of the ramifications of this statement. First of all, we think about what it means that, that the Word became flesh and, and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. The era of types and shadows is no longer the era of types and shadows is no longer. At the incarnation, the era of types and shadows had once and for all come to its end. No longer was a nation secluded from and privileged above all others as the people of God. Think of the conversation Jesus had with a woman at the well in John 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The presence of God with his people and the worship center was no longer the tabernacle or the temple. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
that which was the reality became flesh and tabernacled among us. The day of the the types and the shadows and the, the looking ahead to the one who would come had come to an end. Because the true tabernacle has arrived. The era of types and shadows is over. The true tabernacle has arrived. We as fallen man still need a tabernacle where we can meet God. Don't we? We still need that meeting place. We still need access to Him. We still need the work of the priest. We still need the sacrifice for sin. We still need the intimate fellowship with Him that was lost in the garden. The gospel of the incarnation is this. Jesus is that place where we can meet with God. He is the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Jesus, in his human flesh, is the antitype of that tent in the center of the camp. It has been rightly said, God is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. And in his blessed person, God dwells in the midst of us as in a tent. For such is the force of the original in our text. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What we need to understand is that the Lord Jesus came to earth and dwelt among men as Yahweh of old dwelt in His sanctuary in the midst of the Israelite camp. Brothers and sisters, this should greatly encourage our hearts and give us hope during this Christmas season. No longer is there a, is there a tent in the wilderness, but instead God became man and dwelt among us. The true tabernacle, thirdly, is, is far better than the types and shadows. We saw that the day of the shadows and the types has passed, The true tabernacle has arrived. Is that good news or not? Brothers, that's fantastic news. The true tabernacle is far better than the types and shadows. This is where we really hit pay dirt. This is where the treasure of this text comes out. The reality is always better than the shadow. We've experienced that, right? Standing at the foot of the mountains and looking up at the greatness and grandeur of their immensity is so much better than flipping through a book of pictures of those same mountains, isn't it? What the Israelites had in the, in the wilderness was a picture book of the mountains. And what we have in Jesus Christ is the ability to, to stand at the foot of those mountains and experience them for ourselves. God became man and dwelt with us. Yahweh of old dwelt in a tent like the tents his people dwelt in. But Jesus has made his tent the flesh of man. He took on himself the very nature and substance of manhood with all the weakness, suffering, and mortality that comes with it, yet without sin. He like Eve to Adam, became bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. 
Stretch your minds a little bit further with me this morning. Jesus did not just dwell in flesh, but He was made flesh. We see the beautiful doctrine of the hypostatic union here in our text. The incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus became the God-man. Yahweh of old was never one with the tabernacle, was He? He was present in the tabernacle, but he was never one with the tabernacle. However, in Jesus, God became one with man. This is close to unfathomable, isn't it? It's hard to even wrap our minds around this. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. In the tabernacle in the wilderness, also called the tent of meeting, God met with his people and they were reconciled to him as the sacrifices were offered. In Jesus, we see the one who is reconciling the world unto himself as the Lamb of God offered up himself once for all. The true tabernacle is far better than the types and the shadows. Thirdly, let's, let's consider the presence of God with man today and forever. Although our text today does not touch on it, I want to briefly mention the rest of the story of God's presence with man. Today, since the time of the Incarnation, we now have an even closer relationship with God than, than, than did those who walked the earth with Jesus. Jesus himself encouraged his followers that for him to go away would be even better than if he stayed because he was going to send another paraclete, another advocate, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in believers. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.19 calls our bodies as believers the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow. From, from the garden to the tabernacle to the temple to the tabernacle to the temple. And now, we're, now we consider the eternal state forever. There are, there, are two, there are two ways that the presence of God is manifested in eternity. One is for unbelievers. Unbelievers will forever be in the presence of the Lamb of God. This, however, will be the presence of the holy, righteous judge. Revelation 14, 9-11 gives us this sobering scene. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name 
The presence of the Lord for the unbeliever in eternity only brings judgment. The unbeliever will not enjoy the presence of the glory of the Lord. Second Thessalonians 1, 7b through 9 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Unbelievers will not know the eternal joyful presence of the glory of the Lord or his, the glory of his might, but instead will be forever under the judgment of the Lamb. That's hard to hear. That's hard to think about. That's hard to consider our friends and family who we love and care about. But that's the truth. For believers, however, we will be in the presence of God in glory. We will be made like Christ, for we shall see Him as He is. We will worship God in the true tabernacle, not made with hands. We will learn of God more deeply and intimately and never experience the slightest degree of separation. Listen to John's words as he describes the eternal state for the believer in Revelation 22, 1-5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what believers have to look forward to, enjoying the presence of God and of the Lamb for all of eternity. We see the full cycle of God's presence with man. From, from the garden, God's original intent, to the Old Testament tabernacle, to the temple, to the word tabernacling among us, to ourselves as believers, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and then to the eternal state where believers once again are returned to the original intention of God, enjoying fellowship with Him forever. We have looked at the first two phrases in, in verse 14 of John's first chapter. Now let's turn our attention to the third. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, rejoice in the gospel of the Incarnation. Come, let us adore Him and see His glory here today. We have seen His glory, John says. First of all, we have to understand what John meant by that. We have to, we have to define again. We find ourselves defining so much. That's critical to our understanding things correctly. Who's the we that John speaks of? Most commentators agree at this point, John was first and foremost talking about himself and those who were with the incarnate Christ as he walked on this earth. 
Does that lessen the impact of this statement? Does it make it worthless for us today? Like, oh, we missed the we. We're not part of the we. Not by any means, does it? For we, we believe that there is also a very real sense that we can, with John and the other apostles and those who walked with Christ, truthfully claim that we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of tra- grace and truth. How can we, some 2,000 odd years after the God-men walked on the face of this earth, see His glory? Let's explore that together. What is his glory? In the old tabernacle, there was a manifestation of the presence of God. The smoke, the cloud, the fire, the light. This was the extent of the glory of that tabernacle. Granted, that was incredible. Uh, I don't think any of the Israelites were moping around saying, boy, if God could just give us a little bit more spectacular demonstration of his presence. No, this was, this was what they had, but it was incredible. God manifested his presence for his people like that was, was unbelievable. But as incredible as a, a revelation that was, it was not at all on the same plane of the incarnate word. Think of it. The high priest, once a year, could enter into the veil. That was it. One man, one day a year, could enter into the veil. This was as close as man could get. That one man once a year saw the physical appearance of the glory of God and the rest of the camp could see the pillar of cloud and fire to assure them that the glory of God had not departed. In Christ, we have so much more than physical appearances which represent God, who is a spirit. In Christ, we have so much more. God as a spirit cannot be perceived by our senses. Listen to how Spurgeon spoke of the glory of God in the man Christ Jesus. He said this, There is in him a glory as of the only begotten of the Father, the moral and spiritual glory of the Godhead. This is to be seen, but not with the eyes. This is to be perceived, but not by the carnal senses. This is seen and heard and known by spiritual men whose mental perceptions are keener than those of sight and hearing. In the person of the Lord there is a glory which is seen by our faith, which is discerned of our renewed spirits and is made to operate upon our hearts. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is not a thing of outward appearance to behold with the eyes like the pillar of cloud and fire, but there is an abiding, steady luster of holy, gracious, truthful character about our Lord Jesus Christ, which is best seen by those who by reason of sanctification are made fit to discern it. Amen. What a great summary statement for us to consider this morning. You see, friends, the glory of God in the sanctuary was seen only by the priest of the house of Aaron. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is seen by all believers who are, in fact, priests unto God.
And this glory has a transforming grace to it. We, as we behold his glory, are changed from one degree of glory to another. So truly, we are a part of the we that has seen his glory. We only have to read the Gospels to look with the eyes that are eager to see and we can behold in Christ all that can possibly be seen of God. Yes, it is veiled in human flesh out of necessity since we cannot look into the glory of God unveiled and live. This glory of God in the Word is said to be as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what does he mean when he says the only Son from the Father? John declares Jesus here and elsewhere to be the monogonase. That's a weird word, isn't it? means the one and only, the one of a kind, the unique Son of the Father. This is important for us to note. The seemingly small detail is actually huge. Jesus is the only God-man. The only man who exegetes the Father, as said in verse 18 of our text. We must dismiss any other source of revelation which claims the same or equal status is Jesus. He is the monogonase, the unique Son of the Father. And there is none that holds that same station. John says he's full of grace and truth. These two divine attributes are more clearly seen in Jesus than in any other source. Any of us could be a messenger of grace and truth, but Jesus, the God-man, is grace and truth. We can be the conduit for grace and truth. We can be the pipe that carries the water. But Jesus is the source of grace and truth. Jesus is grace and truth blended. It is worth noting that these two attributes are not standalone attributes. They are joined, they are linked. John declares that Jesus is full of grace and truth, not merely one who proclaims grace and truth. The other beautiful thing to notice here is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. They form a homogenous whole. Those of you in science classes might remember what that that mixture is. If you have a homogenous mixture, you put two or more elements together and you you give it a stir and it's now now one whole. Grace and truth in Christ are like that. They're a homogenous mixture. They can't be separated. Jesus' truth is saturated with grace. Jesus' grace is inextricably bound to truth. The grace is truthful grace. The truth is full of grace. His grace does not promise a fiction. His grace promises and provides for us a reality of redemption. A redemption where sin is fully and finally forgiven. Jesus did not come to tell us of the existence of grace, to declare the availability of grace, but instead he came to actually bring grace to us. His truth is not the kind of truth that only brings judgment and condemnation. 
No, his truth is gracious, dripping with mercy. The truth that Jesus brings comes to us not from the judgment seat, but from the mercy seat. His truth aims for deliverance, for redemption. How amazing is the incarnate Christ. The grace, all true. The truth, all gracious. His grace and truth are balanced. We see that they're blended, and we also want to understand that they're balanced. Jesus is the perfect balance of grace and truth. Never does he neglect one in favor of the other. How many of us can say that we have a good handle on balancing grace and truth? Don't ask my wife about me. She'll say that I don't. (laughs) And I think that's true of most of us. Most of us tend one way or the other, don't we? If we are very blessed, we will marry someone who helps bring that balance into our lives. But it is a rarity indeed to find one who is is exemplary in the way that they hold these two qualities in balance. We can all think of the people that we know and probably even ourselves who have definite leanings one way or the other. But in Jesus There is no deficit of either. No overpowering of the other. He never hides from us the reality of our condition before him, no matter how terrible that is. Instead, he plainly declares God's wrath against all unrighteousness, and he himself bears it all on our behalf. He never forgives unrighteously. He never condemns unjustly. Romans 3, 21 through 26 reads, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our Lord's ministry is not one of truth alone, or grace alone, but it is a well-balanced ministry of grace and truth. He surely is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth to the fullness, to the fullest. Time will fail us to plumb the depths of the truths that we should explain here. But let it Let it suffice to say that there has never been, nor will there ever be one who outdoes Jesus in grace and truth. We cannot even invent such a person in our imaginations who could possibly be more gracious and truthful than Jesus. His grace and truth are infinite. He does not withhold truth from us just because it might alarm us. What does he say? If they hated me, they will hate you also. Nor does he withhold truth that would bolster our faith. He tells us, if it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus did not merely teach the grace of God, 
but in himself he displayed the grace of God as only God incarnate could do. The incarnation in itself is an incredible display of grace. Think about his life. We see so often that he was moved with compassion. He healed the sick, the lame, the blind. He freed the demon-possessed and called them to follow him. Listen to Hebrews 2, 10 and following. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children of God, the children God has given me, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Meditate on the grace and truth of our Savior this Christmas season. We cannot speak of grace and truth and not focus on the cross, can we? Grace and truth at the cross. The cross was undoubtedly the most graphic, the most memorable, the most horrible, the most wonderful display of the glory of God, full of grace and truth. Jesus' entire earthly existence was focused like a laser on the cross. We have already touched briefly on Romans 3. We know that he did not deserve that death. The truth is this. We deserve the infinite wrath of a holy God against our sin. Jesus preached that. He taught that. His grace led him to the cross where he would become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a gracious substitution. And what a gracious Christ who would not only be our substitute, our representative head, but one who then offers union with himself. We are made one with Christ, joined with a bond that eternity will not break. We could go on for hours rehearsing the grace of the cross, but still consider again, he was also the fullness of truth. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. He is the fulfillment of all the promises God made concerning the coming Messiah. He truly fulfilled them all. All the types and shadows find their yes and amen in Christ. Jesus is the fullness of truth in that he is the reality of all the types of shadows that we see throughout the Old Testament. 
He really, truly is the Lamb of God. He really, truly is the scapegoat who carries our sins into the wilderness as far as the east is from the west. What the Jew had in types of shadows, in types and shadows, we have in substance and in truth. Jesus. In the salvation that Jesus provides for all those who will come to him in faith, we see the paramount truth of grace. As believers, he also works the sanctification in us, which produces truth and grace. And what a great thing that is, that he himself works in us to produce grace and truth in our lives as well. Well, what does all this mean for us today, this morning? First, since God has indeed come to dwell with man by the word made flesh, let us pitch our tents around this central tabernacle. Do not, friends, live as though God were far off or distant. Do not neglect the one who tabernacled among us. You who have never understood the one who is full of grace and truth, run to Christ. He is a gracious Savior who will not let, lead you astray. You are, who are united to Christ in salvation. I speak these words to my heart also. For us, do not live as though he does not exist. Run to Christ daily, moment by moment. Depend on his grace. Soak up his truth. Second this morning, since we then have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thirdly this morning, since God in Christ Jesus really does dwell with his people full of grace and truth, Proclaim him to the world around you. Seek to imitate Jesus' grace and love and compassion for sinners. Share the truth of his message with the lost. Herald the one who was made flesh and tabernacled among us, revealing the glory of God. Proclaim grace and truth wherever and whenever you find yourself mingling with others. Finally, in light of the incredible truths that we just rehearsed this morning together, do not be tempted to stray from Him. Do not be tempted to believe that His grace, His grace is exhaustible. Rest in peaceful confidence in Him who is full of grace and truth. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, in the gospel of the Incarnation. Come, let us adore Him. Let's pray together. Father, we trust 
in you. We trust in Christ. We are humbled and thankful for the Savior who revealed to us your glory. We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for the willingness of Christ to come and tabernacle among us. May we be ambassadors of his grace and truth to the world around us this Christmas season and beyond. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.